0: Thank you. Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This show is brought to you by Lumet.com. Check them out for loans, for senior housing, for healthcare, real estate, for all types of multifamily. They're really experts there. Um, They have people, too. They're not just a website. They're available all over the country. Learn more at Lumet.com. Well, today we're going to talk about a sector that's on the minds of really everyone today, and that's the office sector, right? The office sector really impacts uh, the entire economy, municipalities, and uh, the the retail and, and everything around the office buildings. And, of course, we've seen occupancy and see demand uh, dwindle. We've seen transaction volume uh, slow down, partly because of the spike in interest rates. But what's happening now? How did 2023 end up? What should we expect for 2024? And what are some of the trends to watch out for? Please welcome my guest. It's Phil Mobley. He's director of Office Analytics with the CoStar Group. Phil, good to see you.
1: Thanks, Michael. Great to be back.
0: Yeah, thank you. And so first, let's look at 2023. Kind of everyone knows that uh, most properties kind of suffered a little bit while there were some green shoots. How how did 2023
1: kind of end up? Well, it wasn't great in the (laughs) occupancy market in the office sector. in fact, it was depending on how the final numbers end up shaking out. It was either the second or third worst year for absorption on record. Um, it's interesting that it may not have felt that way because we had our, our worst year in 2020. Right. Um, but it looks like tenants gave back about 55 million square feet uh, over the course of the year, and that's comparable. It's, it's very close to what we saw in uh, 2009, the Great Recession. Uh, and then all the way back in 2001 with the dot-com crash pretty similar numbers there mm-hmm. difference of course is that this time around this is a fourth straight year of, of negative absorption. So we're we're still seeing this uh, Shake out from you know, the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and um, Really the different ways of using office space that have emerged since then. I do think that we we may not be quite at the bottom. I think we're in for another pretty similar year, frankly, in in 24, uh, in terms of absorption. But I think we can see it from here, right? We're probably over halfway through those pre-pandemic leases Mm -hmm. um, that have been rolling over, and a lot of those got extended for a a short term in 2020, 2021. Well, now, I think the good news is tenants are are starting to uh, commit, to space for the long term, we're seeing lease terms return to you know their more or less average pre-pandemic length. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, the bad news is tenants are taking less space, so mm-hmm. there's actually more of them in the market. You know, if you look at the reports from brokerages and, mm-hmm. and software companies, they'll say there are more tenants in the market, and that's true. We saw mm-hmm. the number of leases actually go up in 23. You know. Five, six, seven percent or so over the pre-pandemic norm. But those tended to be 15 to 20% smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been a drag on both absorption and uh, leasing volume. It's kind of the, the move and shrink on the one hand. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, uh, a lot of smaller tenants who may traditionally have stayed put have decided, hey, we're gonna go out in the market and upgrade our space. Yeah. Uh, so I think we've got another year plus of that to shake out the 2024 I think we're going to see more negative absorption. We're going to see increasing vacancy. Thirteen and a half percent by the CoStar reckoning is how we ended 2023. Mm -hmm. That's a record in our numbers. Uh, It's up about 430 basis points Mm -hmm. from uh, kind of mid 2019, which was the trough. Now, if you compare that to what we might see from you know a major brokerage or investment manager. They're reporting on really the competitive leasing market, you know, mm-hmm. sort of multi-tenanted institutional quality space. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to report the whole universe, you know, that's mm-hmm. it's what we do at CoStar. We track mm-hmm. everything. So, if you sort of apply a similar filter to what you might see from another source, then mm-hmm. that thirteen and a half percent is probably more like. or so in the competitive leasing market thats a a comparable figure. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, still a lot to work through in the occupancy market but again I do think we're we're just about to the point where we can see where things bottom out.
0: Yeah so do you expect vacancy to um, increase slightly over your 13.5%, then in 2024?
1: We do. So we saw yeah. it go up uh, 110 basis points or mm-hmm. so last year. I think we're in for something similar this year, um, maybe even a little more in 25. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working on our forecast for 24 right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I expect that we'll probably see vacancy top out somewhere around 16%, somewhere maybe just north, mm-hmm. just south of there. Um, One interesting phenomenon, though, is is I'm actually not sure what that's going to mean for rent. I I don't know that it's going to mean what we would think it would normally mean for rents. In fact, one of the surprises of the last four years is that at least on a nominal basis, uh, office rents have stayed pretty pretty flat uh, on an asking basis, about $35 a square foot is kind of the, the national average. Now, context one piece of context is consumer prices are 20 percent higher than they were in 2019 so that's part of the equation and, mm-hmm. and office rents are the only commercial rents that haven't really kept pace with that right. uh industrial rents have, have far exceeded it for example i think another piece of context is it's like the uh it's like going to the supermarket mm-hmm. and you have your uh your coupons that you cut out of the newspaper Mm -hmm. the face price stays the same but Mm -hmm. you get the you know the buy three and get two free or you Mm -hmm. get the 20 percent off coupon there's something similar that's been going on in the office sector Uh, it's pretty common to offer concessions and those maybe normally you know pre-2020 would have been 20 to 25 percent of the value of the lease now it's more like Thirty to thirty-five percent of the value of the lease. There's Ooh. a lot of variability there. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things that's been going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see what happens with um, with how rents start responding to where you might think they should be uh, given given vacancy. I think there's there's arguments on both sides. So yeah. the argument that rents are going to start falling is um, is really a, a basis argument. In mm-hmm. other words. The more properties transact at discounts to their previous valuations, then the more flexibility those new owners will have to compete by lowering face rents. Mm -hmm. And I think because of that, we are likely to see rents dip some in 24. On the other hand, um, the tenants who have been in the market, those that are willing to commit to space, that are willing to commit to term, they don't seem to have been terribly price sensitive. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the slice of supply that is truly relevant to them and truly competitive, um, they've been paying premium rents typically. And so that, that's the argument for rents may actually not respond as much as you might think to, to increasing vacancy. Because after all, if you're looking for some premium first generation space, it almost doesn't matter how much, you know, Class B uh, space in office parks is, is available. That's that's not really where you're playing. So, uh, yeah. so I think it'll be interesting to watch that play out.
0: Yeah. And even if it is Class B, for example, then you probably want nicer space, right? That's going to be more expensive to, to build out and produce with more amenities, right? And then maybe as a tenant, you're taking less space. So maybe your budget is, okay, well, we can go with smaller space, but nicer, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. So if you can go mm-hmm. to you know premium first generation trophy mm-hmm. asset, mm-hmm. Uh, maybe take twenty percent less space, mm-hmm. pay ten percent more for it on a square yeah. foot per square foot basis, yeah. um, get a generous TI allowance, maybe kick in some money yourself, then your total occupancy cost is about the same, and yeah. you've got an office that maybe is going to work better for you. So um, so that's definitely something that that we've seen. Now I'm of the mind that we we could be coming to the end of that. Mm-hmm. I think with interest rates that they do look look like they've stopped rising. You know, mm-hmm. knock on wood. Yeah. Um, but they are higher than they were, and that right. means the cost to finance those tenant improvements, regardless of who's paying for them, is mm-hmm. higher. Right. Um, and so I think this couponing game, this mm-hmm. um, you know offering concessions in order to hold face rents high. I think there's a limited ability to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I I expect that we will see, because of that and because of what I mentioned with um, new basis owners coming into the market, I think we're gonna see face rents fall. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're gonna see tenants perhaps start preferring some of that second generation sublet space uh, Mm -hmm. of which there's still a great deal on the market. in fact, in the Great Recession, that's the space that that really led the recovery. Mm-hmm. It was that uh, second generation, you know, five to ten year old inventory that you know, at the beginning of the Great Recession tenants gave a bunch of it back, but by 2011, when the recovery started, they started reabsorbing that. Yeah. So the first part of that happened again in 2020. Um, it's that second generation space that you know the the tech companies were acquiring at really high rates in the mm-hmm. late 2010s. They started giving that back. They started putting it on the sublet market. A lot of it's still there. Mm-hmm. And we just haven't had that recovery start. Right. Um, so I think as we as we move forward and get more toward the, the bottom of this shakeout, um, I think that recovery will start.
0: Interesting. As, as you're considering, and, and the audience is considering uh, future demand for office, how much do you take into account the, the job market uh, and what's happening there, and how it impacts companies' ability to get their employees to to come back in the office.
1: yeah, it's it mm-hmm. certainly uh, remains the key demand driver, right? I think the it's been dislocated mm-hmm. the the relationship, but it has not been destroyed. And if, even if you look at the last four years, the periods of time when absorption has been most negative mm-hmm. have been mid twenty twenty when uh lots of you know two and a half million office workers lost their jobs in two months Mm -hmm. Um, and then again in kind of mid to late 22 and early 23 when we had a wave of layoffs uh, mostly focused in the tech sector with some in banking as well Um, now the difference this time is that other than those two periods we've had very quick job growth, uh, especially in uh, the traditional private sector office using industries. And, uh, you know, 21, early 22, five, 6% a year, uh, historically strong job growth. And it took that five or 6% to bring absorption back positive, right? And so that's just an indication that the the relationship is still there no. it's just been dislocated and we're still seeking it out so i think there's um there again there's multiple perspectives on where we go from here mm-hmm. if you look at uh, the indicators of people returning to downtown central business districts people returning to offices uh, there are lots of those indicators out there uh, a couple of my favorite placer.ai uh, is a, a mobility data tracking provider, and they've, they've tagged several hundred office buildings where they're capturing people with their mobile devices, you know, entering and staying the area of an office building. Mm-hmm. And they're showing that about uh, 60% or so on average versus 2019 is where office attendance has been. And that was pretty consistent throughout the whole year. Uh, similarly there's a, a survey run by Professor Nicholas Bloom out of Stanford University the survey of working arrangements and attitudes and according to that survey they they ask uh, about 10,000 workers every month about their working arrangements mm-hmm. very similarly they say well we're in the office about three days a week 60% of the time mm-hmm. you can add maybe 10-12% to that for you know peak days we definitely see this midweek peak pattern um, so is there more upside risk to people coming back with, uh, with greater frequency? Sure there is. You know, we were talking before we started about UPS, big Atlanta employer uh, making a push for greater attendance starting in March of this year. There are other examples of that. Um, so I think we probably will see attendance increase I think the other side of the argument, though, is that we're actually looking, uh, if you believe the economic forecasters like Oxford, which is who we use uh, at CoStar, we're looking at a period of uh, much lower average job growth in the next decade or so, probably less than 1%, Mm. whereas over the last 20 years or so, at least in expansions, we've seen something that looks more like 2%. Um, So I think that's the other side of the coin is, you know, given that the relationship actually still does exist between employment and demand for office, if if we're growing the employment base slower, then even if those existing employees do start attending with greater frequency, uh, to what degree does one prevail over the other? To what degree do they cancel each other out? It's not really easy to tell. I, I think... What I go back to is what we've seen in the leasing market, which is over the last four quarters, we saw a very consistent trend of, of tenants still willing to commit to term or, or being newly willing to commit to the kinds of terms they did pre-pandemic, but taking less space. Um, so as we work our way through the remaining 40, 45% of pre-pandemic leases over the next couple of years, um, then I think we'll see that relationship really reset and we'll, we'll be able to forecast with much greater accuracy.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And as our audience knows, you know, we're talking kind of broad brush here about office, but um, uh, it really comes down to specific buildings, submarket and market, right? class of property. Um, on, on one of the things that we've seen selling office buildings is when we sell buildings with a lot of small suites, a lot of those businesses, they're in there occupying. They're using those spaces, and those, you know, those buildings are being used. We see, we saw some buildings with very large corporate tenants. They seem to be having more trouble getting folks, you know, back to the office. And interesting, you mentioned UPS. You know, a big employer like that saying, hey we want you back five days a, as a week. You know, how fast does, does that that help the market? And, and and my question to you then is, um, maybe ge- more geographic and more class, you know, what do you see for differences between kind of a newer product and, and, and demand for the rest? And then what do you see for, for different geographic markets and, and cities?
1: Yeah, well, there absolutely mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. nuances. And, and I think first, if you think about asset quality, um, one of the things that we've learned is that it, it's really important to go a little deeper than class A versus B versus C, um, and I've said I've used the term first generation a couple of times yeah. as we've been talking here, and I think that's one of the key delineators. Um, buildings that have been constructed really in the last three to five years—they're on their first cycle of leases. Uh, even today, a lot of the the space that is under construction and soon to be delivered is pre leased There's a, a building in Boston, one Congress um, delivered mid to late summer this year, essentially fully leased, uh, million square foot tower. So th- there's demand for that kind of space as consistently as ever, 50 million square feet a year and positive absorption for you know a decade plus now. Um, one level below that is, and I'm not the person who invented this term, but I like it. It's commodity class A. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of hey, this is a nice building, but there's nothing necessarily special about it. At least not anymore. It, it's it's yeah. that second generation, to third and fourth, you know, built in the you know maybe 90s plus. Um, that's the space that we're seeing a concentration of of sublease, you know, subleases is down actually from its peak in the middle of last year. So I think that's a good sign, uh, but it's still twice what it was in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that is concentrated in this commodity class A space. And that's, you know, by our reckoning, 25% or so of inventory is this, mm-hmm. you know, class A, but a step below the, the trophy or the true premium space.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so uh, in terms of, of a share of inventory, it's actually performed worse than the kind of uh, class B space. Um, although the, the total negative absorption over the last four years is pretty similar between the two, but there's just less of this commodity A. And mm-hmm. so that, I think it's a really important cool. distinction. Um, and then geographically, uh, absolutely there are differences. And I think, you know, on one end of the spectrum, really in a class by itself is San Francisco, mm-hmm. which, which experienced the perfect storm of uh, a market that's heavily dependent on, b- because of the concentration of companies and workers there, the, the tech sector, yeah. um, who were the ones who were uh, most flexible at the beginning of the pandemic and continued to be in terms of their workplace arrangement. Mm-hmm. But then after that, um, that's where the the slowdown in employment really started. Um, in fact, Employment in the information sector, which is where a lot of those uh, companies are classified, it's actually negative over mm-hmm. the last uh, six to nine months. Mm-hmm. total office using employment is, is essentially flat since May of last year, okay. um, but among the tech companies, it's actually negative. So it's kind of the double whammy there. San Francisco mm-hmm. is highly exposed to both of those factors. Um And then, you know, it's also a big city. It's expensive to live in. It's difficult to commute into. All of those things matter. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you take a market like Miami um, that is not immune to those forces, but it has some resilience because uh, personal and corporate in-migration from other places that has has buoyed the office market Um, actually didn't have... uh, comparatively a whole lot of supply in, in the office sector and so that's uh, helped their vacancy numbers as well um so it's one of the few markets where vacancy is actually flat to uh to trending downwards since 2020. there's some other markets major markets that have at least from a demand perspective held relatively steady uh houston's one of those markets las vegas is one of those markets um, Interestingly, Austin. Austin has seen positive demand, um, yet they've seen also one of the largest increases in vacancy because uh, there's just so much new supply there that is uh, even still under construction. So that's kind of your your classic supply-demand imbalance there. Um, but it's not really because of the demand side. It's more because of the supply side. So yeah. uh, in general, I would say once you get past the the major markets, the top 15 to 20, you know you look up look at a place like sacramento or st louis uh or um nashville it's not that there aren't challenges to demand there because there are but in markets like that you've got a, a tenant base that tends to be more locally focused it's not going to be the you know the third regional office of a global employer with ten thousand employees mm-hmm. um, and those local tenants behave differently in terms of how they approach office space and yeah. so because of that um you don't get the the same impacts in those smaller markets they they also tend not to have as much speculative development just because um you know precisely because they don't attract those you know right. third and fourth regional offices from major occupiers. So uh, they stay a little bit more in balance and we've seen that as well.
0: Yeah. One of the aspects that our audience sees in the office market is the difference between suburban and central business district. What's the trends you see, see there overall?
1: Well there there are differences mm-hmm. um and I think it it's a d- difference of degree more than kind. Um in general, the suburbs have performed—I'll say—less poorly from a, from a demand <laughs> yeah. perspective. Um, part of that is because you know, if, if you think back to—it's—it's it's hard to remember now—but <laughs> if you think back to two years ago, beginning of of twenty-two, and we had a little thing called the Omicron variant come along, um, which really set a lot of things back, right? It, we sort of reverted temporarily to uh, avoiding things like crowds and public transit Mm -hmm. Uh, and and these major markets these downtown areas that are dependent on public transit uh, they suffered because of that the office buildings suffered because of that whereas in the suburbs where you are already typically driving a car to get to work um, you didn't have quite as much of that you know uh, habit formation and unformation and reformation that we saw impacting the major markets. Um, the other thing about suburbs is they, they tend to be more commercially diverse. So you might have an office park or an office building, but that's going to be right down the street from, you know, a lifestyle center or a group of restaurants or some apartment complexes. They're not as, um, as a single purpose oriented as say, you know, downtown Manhattan or, or even um, Midtown Atlanta mm-hmm. for that matter. Um, and so because of that commercial diversity, you have uh, a sort of baseline of human beings walking around the place that are doing something other than just going uh, to work in an office. Yeah. And because of that, it turns out that the, the office buildings do tend to perform better. So yeah. that, that's another thing the suburbs have going for them.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's nice to have an office where your employees can go do something pretty close, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, whether it's entertainment and or and the restaurant.
1: retail itself isn't dependent on the office workers, right? It's, right. it's sort of the reverse of that. The, the right. draw is I'm, I'm going to come here to play. Good point. Um, and I'm going to work here as well because it's convenient to the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. Now, we're seeing some office buildings uh, get torn down. Uh, we're seeing some get converted to other uses. Um, we're also seeing uh, a new supply and a start to the starts are kind of stopping. <laughs> you know, so, what, how does that impact the office market? And what, what do you think the timing might be there?
1: Yeah, so I uh, I have worked on the conversion angle with my mm-hmm. counterpart at CoStar on, on the multifamily side. We've done some analysis of that. And sort of the line that we use is that um, conversions are transformative at the neighborhood level, but they're not really going to impact the, the overall market fundamentals mm-hmm. on either the office or multifamily side. That doesn't mean that um, they're not a thing. They are, yeah. and, and they're certainly increasing um Boston, where I live, has a, a government program that's offering a, a tax abatement for uh, building owners who can convert office to residential. New York has looked at similar similar programs, Chicago, uh, the federal government has even gotten involved and has... Uh, sort of curated a bunch of existing federal programs and and done some things to try to make transfers of title a little easier to facilitate conversion. So these things are absolutely trends um, and they're going to be meaningful in the instances where they apply. the analysis that we did suggested that kind of the optimistic scenario is you're, you're looking at reducing office inventory by two, two and a half percent Um, And again, I think that's on the optimistic side. And uh, on the multifamily side, you'd increase inventory by about 1%. Um, Now, what the second thing you mentioned, which is uh, construction starts, they were only about 30, 31 million square feet last year, which is the lowest we've seen since 2010. and that's going to create this this really interesting phenomenon in two to three years where, um, you know, assume that demand for first generation space remains as consistent as it has forever, essentially, you know, through the Great Recession, through the COVID recession uh, up to now. Um, if, in fact, it, it does, we're actually going to run out of it, you know, by the time we get toward the end of, of 2026. So historically. New construction is two and a half percent or so of, of inventory, and that, that vacillates a little bit. Um, it's never been below one percent, at least not in the in the last twenty five years. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're headed by the beginning of twenty twenty seven, and unless we um, unless we start soon and build fast, um, then we're going to have actually a supply crunch in this kind of premium first generation space um
0: beginning maybe 26 yeah i
1: mean i think the market will start reacting to it probably in Mm -hmm. 26 Mm -hmm. um so yeah we'll we'll see what happens it's we could have this phenomenon where the vacancy rate is actually continuing to rise Mm -hmm. um but you know if if there's uh you know four percent of the market is commodity class A or, or B plus space that is really irrelevant to the, the tenants who are actually in the market for space, um, it's not going to necessarily affect the price they're going to be paying yeah. for, for that premium space.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, that should maybe shoot up some rents, right? In some of these markets uh, if they want new, no, new buildings
1: yeah right i mean yeah. it's 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 a, a liquidity issue right it's yeah. similar to what we've seen in the capital markets but mm-hmm. in, in the in the leasing market, if you're not transacting in the middle market or down market then you know those, those rents you don't really know how much they're moving whereas if all the activity is concentrated at the top of the market, those rents may continue to to rise yeah. um, and so the the net effect of that so far has been essentially flat yeah but but that could change
0: yeah What's interesting. So if you're a tenant in a new first-generation office building, you might want to be okay with a very long lease term, right?
1: <laughs> well, and they, and so far, tenants have been willing to do that yeah. because they have been getting the support of more generous concession packages. Right. So if you, if you yeah. want the, you know, I don't actually think it's the build-out more than the free rent, although both mm. have been available. But if you want that nice build-out in premium yeah. space, then, yeah, you've got to commit to term. And, and that's what yeah. they've been doing so far.
0: Yeah. Talk to us about green shoots, silver linings, well, what do you see?
1: Yeah, well, one of them is what we were just talking about, right, mm-hmm. which is um, if you are in a well-capitalized position to own a premium office building, um, then then you may do just fine. Now, you're going to do it by stealing market share. So this mm-hmm. isn't the rising tide lifting your boat. This mm-hmm. is you you know, taking on passengers from the sinking boats. Um <laughs> But but you may be positioned to be just fine. I, I, I do think as well that um, one thing that's different now than, say, two years ago um, is, is even though we, we've got last year and this year that are, are going to look bad from a statistical standpoint when you talk about absorption and demand. Um, but what we do have now on the positive side is the quality of occupancy now is much higher than it was two years ago right. in 21 even early 22, you had a lot of tenants kick in the can. They, mm-hmm. they weren't really sure what they wanted mm-hmm. out of their office space. And so they just, I don't know, I'll renew in place for 12, 18, 24 months.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, now those are coming due, which is another reason why there are more tenants in the market. Yeah. Um, and the tenants, yeah, they may be taking less space, but they're committing to it. Um, they have in their mind a picture of what they want their workplace to look like you know whether that's 5 days in the office whether that's 3 days in the office whatever it is they've got that picture in their mind and they're acting accordingly so what that means is you can probably count on those tenants you know barring a, a major economic catastrophe you can count on them to be there at the end of the lease term yeah whereas a couple of years ago you know, even the ones that were renewing short term extensions, we, we would still see some of that space end up on the sublease market pretty quickly. Yeah. So I don't think we're all the way back to what we might think of as, you know, uh, normal underwriting assumptions for, for um, renewals and for tenants actually occupying and paying for the space for the full length of term. Uh, but I think we're a lot closer now than we were a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, what would you leave our audience with, Phil, to think about for office uh, in 2024?
1: But we've got more shakeout to come. Um, you know, it, it, it's not a, a simple one uh, one phenomenon impacting everything. You know, if it, one way to look at that is just look at the the buildings that have transacted. We have a couple of indices that try to capture the change in values, and if we if you look at what we call our um, equal weighted um, repeat sales index. So this is treating every sale as kind of one. Every sale counts as, as an equal sale and you average all those together. The values appear to be down, you know, 12 to 15% or so, 10 to 12% from peak. Well, that's right in line with what you would expect if your cap rate goes from seven to eight, right? It's, mm-hmm. And that's true across the commercial property sectors, right? So there is part of of office that is behaving just like commercial real estate always has, You're right? Um, and that's because you know a lot of what's been transacting has been smaller, relatively safe from a risk perspective. You know, long term lease properties. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you look at the what we call our, our value weighted index, which is more the multi tenanted institutional grade. Um, we, in the past, we would have thought of it as you know core office. Maybe now it's more value add. Um, that index shows values down 25% or so. So there's something more than just the cap rate effect going on there. There's all these effects of uncertain demand. Um, And so so that's what I would leave you with is there's a lot of nuance out there. There's nuance across markets. There's nuance across the type of product. And there's nuance across, you know, what's actually transacting, who's buying and why they're buying. Because there's just... There's not uh, there's not just a simple story going on.
0: Yeah. Well, you mentioned cap rates, and we didn't really talk about it yet. So let's talk about that briefly. Kind of what are you seeing trend wise there? And you just mentioned maybe 100 basis points increase in cap rates on the really high end properties. What else are you seeing?
1: Yeah. So one thing that typically happens historically is when you have uh, an environment of rising interest rates. Then those rates have to stop rising, and then what happens is cap rates tend to keep rising for a little while, mm-hmm. and the reason is because you need some certainty about what your, your risk free return is going to look like before that risk premium can kind of adjust. Right now we've got you know, still probably a compression of the spread between real estate cap rates and um, you know say the ten year treasury or the triple B so i expect that we're going to see more cap rate expansion Mm -hmm. you know it how much is going to depend and and frankly we may actually not see cap rates expand much more on those kind of i'll I'll say air quotes safer deals um but you know if you think about some of the the distressed properties or the foreclosure sales that are starting to happen I mean, those aren't really cap rate deals, right? So, mm-hmm.
0: price per pound, yeah.
1: Yeah, more yeah. price per pound. So, mm-hmm. uh, replacement costs, you know. So, we, on average, mm-hmm. I think we may see some expansion, but where cap rates are actually relevant, um, maybe not as much as kind of the total fall in values that we anticipate, which, you know, I, I think we are probably looking at 30 to 40% on average from peak. Mm-hmm. Um, but what that looks like for cap rates, if you're out to buy a stabilized property, maybe not quite what you think.
0: Yeah, and I, I lead a team that sells office buildings in the southeast mainly, and you know we're seeing the the smaller buildings where maybe owner occupants or parcel users buy them. We're not seeing those values plummet as much, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the street here, if you will, sure. as we are the really large buildings. You know, I'm selling some a really large building and you know it's like i'm i'm hearing fallen knife fallen knife you know no I watch out you know they really plummeting values you're seeing something similar as you track it at Coastar when the smaller ones versus the larger buildings
1: yeah well i think it has to do with the vintage of the lease for one mm-hmm. the vintage of the loan if you got a loan certainly mm-hmm. but the but the vintage of the lease so if you've got a large multi-tenanted building and a lot of your rollover exposure comes from leases that were executed before 2020 yeah and I think that's a very different situation, certainly than a, a single tenant. Right. But even if you've got a, a a recently constructed building with, you know, leases that were signed 21, 22 last year, mm-hmm. that's that quality of occupancy. That's just a different situation. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So, so I think that's I think you're going to start to see some of those nuances play out as well.
0: Yeah. Well, that's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, I'm, I naturally think about that when I'm looking at the rent roll and I look at the move in dates and I say, well, this is before covid so do we really know that's right but when i see past covid uh, you know i'm like okay well maybe they're a little more secure in what they're doing
1: yeah and, it, and even looking yeah. at something like the the fdic's mm-hmm. um loan workout guidance you know mm-hmm. so, some of the examples they provide are they essentially suggest that if you've got low daily attendance and a lot of lease exposure from these older leases mm-hmm. then you got to discount that you, you mm-hmm. can't you know as the lender even you can't um, you can't just kind of wink and nod and extend you've got to have yeah. a stronger basis for that but it's a totally different situation if you've got tenants that have committed to the space in sort of this new normal right yeah. um, because they're they're going to use that space that's why they took it on
0: yeah well it's interesting to see some of these prices per square foot being so low on some of these buildings, and it makes sense. I, I get it, but when you think about them getting maybe a building at sixty dollars a foot, you know, to buy it, <laughs> and the replacement cost is what five sixty a foot? I don't know, uh, be new, but I mean, yeah, it's pretty amazing what people are getting these prices. Uh,
1: if you can I get just- an office building for sixty dollars a foot, mm-hmm. and you know, let the, the the type of buyer that we've seen out there on the on the smaller end of the market, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe they're cutting a check for five million, ten million, twenty million, mm-hmm. but at that price per pound, you, you can probably make it cash flow at seventy yeah. percent occupancy, right? So right. You, you don't even necessarily have to have a, a great plan, right? If you're willing to take the risk, although yeah. I'm, I'm sure a lot of those buyers do have a plan, right? They're, yeah, yeah. they're going to do something. You know, yeah, once the capital environment.
0: Changes. Yeah, they do, and I think it's it's going to be amazing. Twenty twenty four, I think, is going to go down in history as an interesting time to have bought office properties because of the of the risk, right? And, and the low prices and the high interest rates that we have at the moment. So it's gonna be interesting to see and Phil, great information as usual. Thank you for joining us, sir.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure, Michael.
0: All right, and thank you for joining us around the country. We sure appreciate it. And we appreciate you sharing the show, commenting. Uh, please connect with us on your favorite social media. And until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn and laugh and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Bull Realty for commercial brokerage sales and leasing in the Southeast U.S. Contact our show host by email at michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success Strategies, 21 incredible one-hour agent training videos. Learn more at commercialagentsuccess.com. And by Lumet. For senior housing, health care, and multifamily financing, visit lumet.com. Com. For more podcasts and videos, subscribe and visit CREshow.com.